the gospel is not an improvement. It's a complete change. Not an improvement. It is a complete change. Right? Like that's, that's the distinction. That's, that's important for us to understand about the gospel here. That when you come to Jesus, it's not like, it's not like most everything is good and you just got to tweak a few things. Right? It's, it's not like, hey, I've been living a good life. Like I'm 95% there, but you know that 5%, I need Jesus to really help me figure it out. No, 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 no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this understanding that like you were dead in your sin and so was I. That there was no hope whatsoever. That, that, that our future was filled with death and complete separation from God forever, for all of eternity. But then God stepped in. And the God of the universe took on flesh walked this earth, lived a sinless life, a perfect life, took upon himself at the cross your sin and mine as the perfect sacrifice and the perfect ransom, the perfect substitute for our sin. He took it in his body. He bore our sins in his body. And he did for you what no one else has ever done for you. That's the gospel. It's not just an improvement upon your life. It's a complete change. This right here is what Jesus does to us what he does. This is what the gospel is. And so we see all these stories in the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, stories where it seemed like there was no hope, stories where it seemed like, like they were at the end of their rope or there was a dead end or, man, they're, they're, it's, it's just not going to turn out well. We see all of these stories where, where God steps in out of nowhere, right, and he changes the outcome. Well, this is a complete foreshadow of the gospel because that's what Jesus does. That's what he's done in your life, and that's what he's done in my life. There could not be a greater comma than the gospel. Hey, we are in week three of a teaching series uh, called God of the Comma, where we're looking at some pretty amazing stories in the Bible where God stepped in and he changed the outcome, where God stepped in and he replaced a period with a comma. Uh, really looking at this idea in this series, you know, had, had God not stepped into that story, uh, it would have ended differently. Uh, had, God, had God not stepped in and, and uh, kind of uh, overridden <laughs> what was going on, it would have ended differently. I think there's a lot of us in this room this morning who can relate to that reality. You know, had God not stepped into your life, had he not stepped into your story or your situation, it would have gone uh, much differently, right? And, and so I read the Bible and I see all of these stories, right? I see, see all of these stories, you know, where had God not stepped in, uh, the blind man uh, would have stayed blind. The crippled person would have stayed crippled, right? The, the sick person would have stayed sick. Lazarus, the dead man, would have stayed dead. Uh, all of these examples that I just gave you in the Bible and, and, and the examples of, of really each of you here uh, this morning, how many of y'all know all had moments where it seemed like the story was finished? Like, like all had moments where it seemed like the final period had been placed at the end of the final sentence, you know, where there, there was no hope. And so I really feel like, like I'm bringing quite a bit of passion into this series to start the fall because I'm convinced that we've all had times like these in our life. Times where we were certain it was over, times where we messed up, where we were sick, where, you know, we got hurt or somebody walked out or we were given some pretty bad news. I think we've all experienced times like that. And yet I read the Bible and I read all like story after story after story and I just see so much hope. You know, I, I, I see all of these, these stories in the Bible that really seem to foreshadow the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. You know, uh, there's, there's like death and sickness and brokenness and pain and hopelessness and despair and 
people at the end of their rope and these stories that we read in the Bible. There's so many stories in the Bible where uh, it, it seemed like they had that period end of story moment where, you know, it all, it all seemed over until God stepped in, right, and he changed, he changed the outcome. Well, like, this is what the gospel is. Like, that's why, that's why I, I'm telling you, I, I read these stories and they foreshadow the gospel because that's what the gospel is, like, man in a pretty, pretty bad place because of sin. And, and, you know, Jesus stepping in, you know, God in flesh and uh, really changing everything. So Jesus, he continues to step in. He continues to change lives today. He continues to step into the lives of people who are essentially dead and dying and broken and areas of their life that are in decay. And he, what does Jesus do? Like he breathes new life into them. And so this is the gospel. And this is kind of what we see in like story after story in the Bible, a complete foreshadow of what's about to come or, or a looking back at what had happened at the cross. And so, you know, I, 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 I love the gospel and, and I, love, I love that we see the gospel kind of told and retold and retold all throughout scripture, but we see it all throughout history as well. I love the way the Apostle Paul frames the gospel, in my opinion, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. If you want to look at this scripture where he says, he says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things God, uh, he planned for us long ago. Let me read that one more time. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I love that language. I love, I love the language the Apostle Paul uses here. I love that word masterpiece. You know, that word in the Greek, it, 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 literally, um, it, it literally gives the implication of like a high-valued piece of art. So you go back to that, the root of that word and how it's used in its original language, it gives the implications of, of this high-value piece of art. So what Paul is really saying is he's saying, hey, when, when, when God steps into your life, right, when, when he comes in, he picks up this paintbrush and he begins to paint. But when he paints, he doesn't just paint over, you know, your, your, your life, like what's already there. And he doesn't just paint over like all the messes you've made out of your life. No, no, no. Paul says here in Ephesians 2 that, that when God steps into your life, he picks up this paintbrush and he begins with a brand new canvas. And then what happens? He begins to paint and he, he creates us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? Why does he do that? Well, according to Paul, it's so we can do some things. It's, it's so we can be some things uh, that he planned for us long ago. So what Paul is saying here is that there is, there is a picture that God has in mind of what he wants your life to look like. You believe that? There is a picture that God has in mind of what he wants your life to look like, and he wants you to let him paint that picture. He wants you to let him paint that picture. Now, you know, most artists who would be considered um, you know, world-class or be considered master artists or master painters, you know, those who have, you know, uh, painted, you know, some of, some of the world's most famous masterpieces. There, there, there are certain things. They all have certain things about, about their work that distinguishes it and sets it apart, whether it's Picasso or Monet or Rembrandt or Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Van Gogh, whoever it is, there are specific characteristics about their style 
that makes it very easy for you to be able to distinguish it and pick it out and set it apart. So you see a Picasso and you go, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's a Picasso. Or you see a Rembrandt and you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's a Rembrandt, right? So there are things about their style, like, like the way they uniquely paint is what sets it apart, okay? There's, there's, there's things about their style that set it apart and make it obvious. Well, God is the same way. He's the same way. And when, when he picks up the paintbrush and he begins to make certain brush strokes on your life, I want you to understand this this morning, that those brush strokes are uniquely God. Like, they're uniquely God. It's his signature. It's obvious, right? And there are certain brush strokes that God, God wants to, to put on the lives of people that makes it very obvious that they are a God painting. That when you see it, you like see his signature detail. You see his, his signature style at work, and it makes it very obvious that God painted that story. God painted that, that picture. And one of the ways we distinguish this, one of the ways it's obvious, if you're taking notes, I want you to catch this, is, is that one of the most distinguishing aspects of who God is is how he loves to replace periods with commas. It's one of the most distinguishing aspects of God. Like you read this really from cover to cover, the full sweep of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we see that this is who God is. Like, like he loves to step in. He loves to get the last word. He loves to replace periods with commas. And so how can I tell when, when someone is uh, a God painting or not? How can I tell? Well, I, I can see the brush strokes of God on their life. Right? I, I can see where he stepped in and, and, and changed the story, where he replaced the periods with the comma. You know, I, I look around this room right now, and I know a lot of your stories. I had the privilege of pastoring uh, alongside you for a long time, and I, and I know the stories in this room, right? A lot of them. And, and I look around this room, and I see a lot of God stories. I see times where, you know, God stepped in, and he changed the outcome, where he took the paintbrush and he painted something unbelievably beautiful out of the story of your life when you thought, man, that just, just, just wasn't going to turn out very well. Like, like a painting you could have never painted on your own, in your own strength, in your own talent, or in your own ability. You want to know why it's that way? Here's why if you're taking notes. Because when God paints your life, he doesn't just improve you, he changes you. It's not an improvement it's a change. It's a transformation. And, you know, a lot of people, they're drawn to religion with the hopes that it will improve their life. So life isn't going the way they want it to go, or they're, they're, they're not very happy. And so a lot of people will try religion with the hopes that it will improve their life. But the problem is that all that religion can do is get you to conform. All it can do. But God wants to do something different. God wants to get you to transform. And those are, those are two entirely different thoughts where people will pursue religion to improve their life, but all it can do is get you to conform. But that's not what the gospel is. That's not what God wants to do in your life. He wants to bring about a transformation. Let me, let me give you the distinctions between these two concepts here. So to conform, it means to comply with rules, standards, or laws, right? So there's, there's conformity here. There's compliance like we have a set of standards in this faith or in this faith and this type of religion. And if you just abide by these things, like you can be included, uh, you know, with us. So, so, so this is what happens for people who just pursue religion to try to improve their lives. It's just conformity. That's all that can happen. But there's a difference, right? Transformation is what God brings. So to transform means this. It means to make a thorough or dramatic change in the form of, uh, in the form, appearance, or character of someone or something. That's, that's entirely different. It's radically different. 
And so what I, what I believe is that when I read the New Testament, I read like, you know, all about Jesus and, you know, the early church and what the gospel is, that transformation's the goal. Not improvement, transformation is the goal. And Paul says being created anew in Christ Jesus, that that is the goal, that being changed from the inside out is, is the goal. In fact, if you're taking notes, this is the gospel right here. The gospel is not an improvement. It's a complete change. Not an improvement. It is a complete change. Right? Like, that's, that's the distinction. That's, that's important for us to understand about the gospel here. That when you come to Jesus, it's not like, it's not like most everything is good and you just got to tweak a few things. Right? It's, it's not like, hey, I've been living a good life. Like, I'm 95% there, but, you know, that 5%, I need Jesus to really help me figure it out. No, 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 no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this understanding that, like, you were dead in your sin, and so was I. That there was no hope whatsoever. That, that, that our future was filled with death and complete separation from God forever, for all of eternity. But then God stepped in. And the God of the universe took on flesh walked this earth, lived a sinless life, a perfect life, took upon himself at the cross your sin and mine as the perfect sacrifice and the per perfect ransom, the perfect substitute for our sin. He took it in his body. He bore our sins in his body. And he did for you what no one else has ever done for you. That, that's the gospel. It's not just an improvement upon your life. It's a complete change. And this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creation. The old has what? The old is gone. The old's not even there, right? It's not an improvement upon the old. The old is gone. The new has come. So when you, when you take this scripture and you, and you look at it, you know, in, in, in the Greek here, the, that, that phrase, new creation, uh, it, it literally means metamorphosis. That's, that's literally what it means. It means transformation. It's this idea of a caterpillar, right, metamorphosing into a butterfly. Like, it's, it's not an improvement. It's a complete change, transforming into this butterfly. It's not just improving upon the caterpillar. It's like, man, you can't even, I can't even tell that you once were a caterpillar. You're entirely different because of this metamorphosis, this transformation that's happening. And so this right here is what Jesus does to us. It's what he does. This is what the gospel is. And so we see all these stories in the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, stories where it seemed like there was no hope, stories where it seemed like, like they were at the end of their rope or there was a dead end or, man, they're, they're, it's, it's just not going to turn out well. We see all of these stories where, where God steps in out of nowhere, right, and he changes the outcome. Well, this is a complete foreshadow of the gospel because that's what Jesus does. That's what he's done in your life, and that's what he's done in my life. There could not be a greater comma than the gospel. Look at this thought with me. The greatest comma that God could ever add to one's life is to take them from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light. There's not, there's not a greater comma than this. And so, so let me just, let me just kind, of, kind of repeat something I've already said in light of this, this thought right here. Like, this is not just an improvement, Right? This is a complete and total change. This is a transformation. Being taken from the kingdom of darkness, brought out of the kingdom of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of light, that's a complete and total transformation. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at a, a very famous story in the Gospel of John chapter 3. It's a story of a man by the name of Nicodemus, and uh, it's a story of his encounter with Jesus. And um, 
this is a story about the first time they really meet and, and talk to each other. And so what I want to do is kind of set the backdrop to the story so that you can kind of pull out the significance of what we're talking about here today. And so in John chapter 3, what we have is two men who are meeting at night. So both Nicodemus and Jesus would have been known as teachers or rabbis of the law of Moses. Uh, now Nicodemus would have been uh, a very powerful and influential man. He had achieved great success and wealth and respect as a religious leader. Uh, but as we read here in John 3 this morning, what we're going to find is that even though, even though Nicodemus has achieved all those things, there's still something very significant that he's lacking. Right? He's lacking a personal faith in Jesus and life in the spirit that Jesus says comes from above. Right? So, so what we have here is this, is this teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, and he, he is uh, a teacher of the law. He is responsible for, for like, uh, helping people know, teaching them how to follow God. And what Jesus kind of points out in Nicodemus' life here is that even though all of that is going on and he's doing all of those things, there's still something inside of him that's broken. There's still something inside of him that's dead, that's, that, that, that needs new life. Now, in contrast to Nicodemus, we have Jesus in this story, right? And at this point in the Gospel of John, up until now, Jesus would have still been um, a pretty obscure yet uh, controversial new rabbi who's bursting on the scene really out of nowhere, right? So he's, he's kind of at the early stages of, of his ministry and kind of um, coming into, you know, his own as a rabbi and gaining a following. And so Nicodemus, he would have been very aware of Jesus, he, he would have observed Jesus at a distance, not up close. He would have heard all the rumors about Jesus that were floating around. And as a result, he's actually become pretty curious about Jesus. He become, he's become intrigued with Jesus. Like, who is this man? You know, he's, he's very intrigued by him. Like, like he sees Jesus and, and he notices that Jesus is entirely different than anybody else. Like, he's completely unorthodox, speaking with, you know, power and authority and performing all kinds of miracles. And so, so Nicodemus is very, very interested in Jesus, but due to the controversy surrounding Jesus at the time, he can't afford to, to be seen associating with him. And so Nicodemus decides to come to Jesus under the cover of night. And, he, and, and when he does, he comes for the purpose of, of really wanting to discuss some religious and philosophical ideas with Jesus, to kind of find out who Jesus really is. Like, like, what is going on here? How are you doing the things that you're doing? And he has, um, he has an encounter uh, that he never could have anticipated. John chapter 3, uh, 1 through 12. Uh, should be on the screen for you as well. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, but... For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Verse 9, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and 
Do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Pretty amazing story. Pretty amazing story where we see Jesus really laying out the gospel for this teacher of Israel. And as these two men are meeting, as they're, they're getting together, Jesus really begins to explain to Nicodemus, remember this, this Jewish rabbi, this respected Jewish rabbi, uh, Jesus begins to explain to him that, that he must be born again. Now, that, that had to have been somewhat offensive to Nicodemus' ears. Like, right? I mean, remember, he is this respected leader. And Jesus is essentially trying to convert him. He's essentially telling him, hey, all that you know and all that you've been taught and all that you teach others, like it's not enough, like there is something still missing here. But the real offense in the story, it would have been more than just, more than just telling Nicodemus that there's more that he needs to learn, more than just telling Nicodemus as, as an older man, you know, that, that I know more than you, essentially, the real offense here would have been the call for Nicodemus to be born differently. That, that would have been the offense in this story. Nicodemus was born, as all Jews were, as descendants of Abraham, and, and that really meant something. Nicodemus would have, would have understood the promise of God to Abraham and, and his descendants Right? He, he would have understood uh, fully what, what that was like. He would have understood the importance of being born into Abraham's family and the implications that that would mean for a Jewish person. He would have had great pride in being born that way as a descendant of Abraham. He, he, would, have, he would have understood you know, what the Old Testament scriptures taught and how if we came from Abraham's lineage and that's our heritage and that, that's pretty important. That sets us apart from all the other people on the face of the earth. That, that causes us to be important, to be God's holy and chosen people. Nicodemus would have been very proud to have been born this way. And so what makes this story wild <laughs> to me is that as Jesus and Nicodemus are meeting at night so that nobody will see them together, Jesus begins to tell Nicodemus about an entirely new kind of birth, a different kind of birth, a new birth that is both necessary and possible by the Spirit. Jesus looks at Nicodemus on that night and he shockingly invites Nicodemus to be born again from above. Here's, what, here's what's going on. Jesus is essentially looking at Nicodemus and he is telling him that your first birth isn't enough. Being born into Abraham's family is not enough. Like, it's not sufficient. That doesn't do everything for you that you think it does. Jesus essentially tells Nicodemus that, that, that even though you were born in Abraham's family, unless you are born into my family, uh, you, you, you're not doing as good as you think you are. There's still something in you that is broken. And, and I think what's interesting here, and what I, what I, what I kind of pull out of this story as I, as I read it, is I, I, I really think that, you know, this offer to Nicodemus to be born again is an offer of a comma. It's an offer from Jesus to Nicodemus for, like, things to look differently in the future. That Jesus is essentially explaining to Nicodemus that there is a path you are on. And if you continue down this path, it's not going to take you where you think it's going to take you. 
But, but, but right now in this place, if you let me take that paintbrush and begin to, begin to paint certain brush strokes onto your life, it can change, it can shift. There's a, there's a new path I have for you, but you can't just rely on the family you've been born into. You have, to, you have to come to me and be born into my family. You have to be born again. And here's what's so shocking in this story, if you're taking notes this morning. Jesus calls out the deadness in Nicodemus and tells him that what is dead inside of him doesn't have to stay dead. I mean, it's a pretty bold statement. It's a pretty bold uh, way for Jesus to speak to this respected leader of Israel, right? He puts a lot on the line. Jesus is taking a pretty big risk talking like this to Nicodemus, and he calls out the deadness in him. He essentially tells, tells Nicodemus that, that you're not as alive as you think you are. That, there, that there, there are some things, there are some mysteries around the kingdom of God that you don't fully understand. You don't fully understand, and he, he, he tells Nicodemus of really the beauty of the gospel, the significance of the gospel, that, that there is new birth through him that, that can happen, that, that you can't rely on anything in your old life to, to get you to where you think you're going. You have to completely, 100% rely on what I can do for you. Here's, what, here's, here's what's going on in this story. God is in the flesh, in, in, in the form of Jesus, and he is telling Nicodemus that some things have to change, that there are some things in his life that cannot remain the same. Look at this thought with me. God loves us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us that way. There's no doubt that when you come to Jesus, like he loves you. There's no doubt when we read in John 15 of the story of the prodigal son that that's, that that's a beautiful picture of the heart of the father towards, towards those who are far from God, that when they take a step towards him and get on that path to come back towards God, that he starts to sprint in their direction. There's no doubt that God loves you and accepts you and receives you as you are, but, but he loves you far too much to leave you in that condition and let you stay the same. The gospel is all about change and transformation. It's all about a metamorphosis. It's all about becoming a new creation. It's all about being painted as a masterpiece by God. And Jesus, in this story, he tells a very respected religious leader, a man who was much older than him, a man who has lived what we would all call a pretty good life, that there is a deadness inside of him that must be dealt with. A deadness that cannot be fixed through some some good behavior or some improved behavior. A deadness that cannot be fixed by just doing a bunch, a bunch of, of good deeds. Jesus tells this very seasoned Nicodemus that he does not need to simply improve upon some things, but rather that he needs to start over as a spiritual infant through new birth from above. That's the conversation. He's essentially telling Nicodemus that everything you think you know it needs to kind of go out the window, and you need to start over as an infant. I, I don't know exactly how this interaction went, other than the, the, the scriptures that we have here to just give us an idea, but I can imagine what it would have been like for me. I can imagine what it would be like for some of you who have walked with God for years, some of you decades, to sit across the table from Jesus and to have him tell you that everything you think you know, you don't know, and it's time to start over as an infant. Time to start over at the beginning. Nicodemus has spent years memorizing scripture, training as a rabbi, seeking the right answers, keeping the sacred traditions, and establishing himself as a reputable 
expert in the field. All of that, and he's still dead. He's still dead. He still has not found the life that only comes through Jesus. What I love about this story is that Nicodemus is having a comma moment and he doesn't even realize it. He doesn't even understand. He's completely oblivious and unaware of what Jesus is trying to do for him, of the comma he's trying to, to add into the story of his life. What's interesting to me about this story is how Nicodemus is completely unaware of his deadness. He's completely unaware of how dead he really is. All he knows is that, there is, there, that there, there's something out there that's different than what he's experienced, and he's, 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 he's uh, compelled to pursue it. He's drawn to Jesus. He's drawn to him by what he has seen, what he's heard, what he's witnessed, and, and, and there's something inside of him that's just not satisfied with the way things are for him to the point that he pursues Jesus. He, he takes a step closer to Jesus. But I believe that as he sits down across the table from Jesus that, that he is completely unaware of how dead he really is. He assumes, I'm sure, that his life is pretty good. He's respected. He knows the law. He teaches people how to follow God. He assumes that he's a good person and that that's good enough. He's completely unaware of how dead he really is in this story. He doesn't understand he doesn't understand that if he continues on the path that he is on, that it will go, it'll end in a, in a dead end. It won't take him where he thinks it's going to take him. If you're taking notes this morning, Nicodemus is completely unaware of the period in his life that God is trying to replace with a comma. He has no idea how dead he really is. Jesus really speaks to this idea in the book of Revelation chapter 3 as he, as he, as he speaks to you know, the, the seven churches. You know, Re Revelation chapter 3 verse 1 it says this, it says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Like these are the words of Jesus in Revelation, and, and, and they're, they're difficult to stomach. They're difficult to digest. And, 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 I, and I, think, I think they actually explain really well uh, what could be going on here in John 3. Nicodemus is a man who would have had a reputation for being alive, a reputation for knowing the scriptures and teaching people how to follow God, but there is something dead inside of him that he can't fix on his own. He can't fix it through scripture memorization. He can't fix, fix it by following all the feasts perfectly and doing all the sacrifices just right. He can't fix it. There's something missing in his life, something that he is lacking. He's lacking a personal faith in Jesus and life in the spirit that comes from above that Jesus talks about here. If you're taking notes this morning, look at this with me. If I'm not changing, I might, be, I might be more dead than I realize. If I'm not changing, I might be more dead than I realize. You know, this is one of the realities uh, to my own life. This is one of the realities to all of us in here who have um, been people of faith for a long time do the routine, come to church each week. The, 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 the goal of the gospel is to make you and I more and more into the, the image of God, to, to make us look more like Jesus and less like ourselves, right? To be this new creation where the old is gone and the new has come. And so that doesn't just entirely happen overnight. From a spiritual perspective, it does. Like the regeneration of your spirit overnight, complete, 
change. But there is a lifelong process of following God and becoming more like Jesus and you know, letting, letting you know, your, your flesh be stripped off of you and so you can walk in the Spirit. That's a lifelong process. But if I'm at a point in my life where I'm not changing, where I'm maintaining, where I'm plateauing, where I'm not hungry for the things of God, I might be more dead than I realize. I may have, I may have uh, accepted some things you know, and, 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 and you know, allowed things into my life you know, giving myself over to things that, that I never should have. I might be more dead than I realize. If I'm not changing, if I'm not continuing to become more like Jesus and less like myself, I may have somewhere along the way become satisfied with the way things are. And I need to make sure that I am, uh, I am always changing, that I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. 1 John 1, 6 through 7, apostle, the same apostle, right? In 1 John, he writes, if we claim to have fellowship with him, Jesus, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If we walk, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Okay? So he's, he's making it very clear that there are people who assume that they're just fine, and they're not. There are people who assume that just because you know, they, they, they've hung around the church, they've been around the things of God, that that's enough for them. Listen, there is nobody at that time in the first century who had hung around God, who had hung around the scriptures more than Nicodemus, and yet there was something very broken and dead inside of him. He had an experience like real transforming life that can only come through Jesus. Jesus wants Nicodemus to know here in this story, hey, you're not as alive as you think you are, and if you continue down this road, there is only death. But if you come to me, if you come to Jesus, there's, you're going to find the life that you are seeking. And so, interestingly, over time, as you track Nicodemus, he pops up in two other places in, in the Gospels. Like, it, it, as you track him, as you, as you see his story, like, over time, he begins to change. He begins to change. He begins to look differently. I wonder, like, how has Jesus changed you? How has he changed you? Think about that, like, honestly, for a moment. As you, as you kind of track your, your uh, you, you know, your spiritual journey, I don't want you just to go from extreme to extreme and go, well, I once was this bad, and now this is who I am. Don't just live in the extremes. I want you to think about, like, like from a year ago, how has Jesus changed your life? From two years ago, how has Jesus changed your life? How is he continuing to change your life? Does he still hold the paintbrush? Is he still making certain brush strokes on your story and on, on the canvas of your life to, to make you look more like him and less like you? What has Jesus changed in your life? And what areas of your life still need the master's brush strokes? What areas does he still need to paint? Like I said, Nicodemus is mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. We read about him primarily and, and get the most information about him in uh, John 3, but, but we read about his story, and, and, and there's two other places he pops up, and, and we start to kind of track this change in him. In chapter 3, where we've been studying this morning, he appears as someone who's really seeking. He's interested. He's curious about Jesus. Someone who's intrigued, but he's also confused by Jesus. He's, he's like, he's not entirely sure, you know, you know, what Jesus is doing and where, you know, where all this is coming from. 
But then a few chapters later in chapter 7, Nicodemus steps forward in this story to defend Jesus among the other religious leaders. Look at the, these scriptures here in, in John chapter 7, 45 through 51. It says, Finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? Speaking of Jesus. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guard, the guard declared. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Has any of the rulers uh, or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. In verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was uh, one of their own number, so he's a Pharisee, right, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? Okay, so, so chapter three, Nicodemus is seeking Jesus. He's, he's interested in Jesus. He's curious about him. Chapter seven, a few chapters later, Nicodemus is actually standing up and defending Jesus to, you know, in, in the presence of other Pharisees. It's pretty inter interesting. And then in chapter 19, towards the end of the Gospel of John, he takes a surprising risk. Nicodemus takes a surprising risk. He joins a man named Joseph of Arimathea, which you may know that name, to give Jesus a decent burial. Now, you know the story of Jesus, right? I mean, very controversial. I mean, all kinds of, of things that, 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 that people did not want to hear, he said, you know, and especially the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had conspired to try to get Jesus killed, you know. And, and, and so Nicodemus is among their group. Chapter 7 said he's among their number. But something happens between chapter 3 and chapter 19. Because in chapter 19, it says later, uh, after Jesus' death, Joseph of, Mar of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews, right? So he's, he's a secret follower of Jesus. <laughs> apparently, that, apparently that, that's a thing uh, here. He's, he's afraid of the, of, of the Jews, and so he was a, he was a secret disciple of Jesus. With, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Very famous. We, a lot of us know that, that story. Verse 39, though, you may gloss over and not remember, but it says he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. There's three places where we see Nicodemus show up in the Gospel of John. And each time we read about Nicodemus, you know what's happening? He's moving closer to Jesus each time. Each time he's moving closer to Jesus. He's a seeker. He's curious. He's kind of, he's kind of uh, hedging a little bit. He, he, he's... he's you're not entirely sure about Jesus. In chapter 7, he's defending him. He's like, he's better than you think he is. There's some things, you know, that we can't deny about him. And then, and then in chapter 19, he's all in. He's given himself over to, to, to Jesus in this new way. And he goes with Joseph of Arimathea, risks everything to make sure Jesus gets a decent burial. Every time we read about Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, he's moving closer to Jesus. Moving closer to Jesus How many of y'all know that when Nicodemus laid Jesus in that tomb, it looked over? When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus and laid him in this tomb, the story looked finished. 
It looked like one of those period, end of story moments. It looked like, hey, maybe we thought he was, but maybe he's, he's not. Or, or maybe we were confused about everything. You know, he, he's laying the man that he is convinced was the Messiah, the promise of God to deliver them from oppression and from sin. Like he, he, he is laying that man into a tomb, his cold body dead. It looked in that moment, I'm sure, to Joseph of Arimathea and to Nicodemus that death had claimed the victory, that death had won. But every single one of us in this room, just about, understand that really the story was just getting started, right? That even though, even though it looks bad and even though it looks over and it looks, looks like death has claimed the victory, it, something Nicodemus doesn't know in this story yet is, is that, is that it's, it's just getting started. Like, it's not the end. There's more chapters. There's more volumes to be written. God is about to, to, to paint the biggest comma he's ever painted, right? He's about to, to resurrect the dead body of Jesus to life. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest comma God ever wrote into, into a story that looked finished. The resurrection of Jesus it gives you power. It gives me power to have life return to the parts of you and to me that have been broken. See, Nicodemus has experienced this. In John 3, he sees this compelling argument from Jesus to be born again. To let that comma be written into his life so he doesn't just continue down a road that will lead to death. Instead, he's like, Jesus is, is saying, hey, let's, let's do something different here. Come and follow me. Find life in me, life in the Spirit through me, and it will take you down a path you never imagined. And then, and then what happens is Nicodemus is front row to the death of Jesus. And a few days later, he experiences the resurrection of God. And the resurrection of God, it gives you the power to have life return to the parts of you that have been broken. I read the story of Nicodemus in John 3, and I, I, I see this question that he asks. Jesus asks, tells him that, that, that he really needs to be born again, that he's got to start over. Right? That he's got to essentially deconstruct it all down to nothingness just about and rebuild from there. You've got to be born again. To which Nicodemus asks this really interesting question. He says this. He says, how can it be? How can this be? A few verses later, John tells us how. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How can this be? How can this be? There is such a loaded thought. This is such a loaded question from Nicodemus to Jesus. He's asking more than just, just you know, how can, how can I return back into my mother's womb? That's completely impossible. Like, he, he's asking some big things here. Like, how can, how can this, uh, these impossibilities actually happen? Like, I don't get it. I don't know how this works. I think we find ourselves asking these kinds of questions a lot to Jesus. When we're facing things in our lives that we didn't plan on facing, we're not sure if there's hope or if there's more to be written into the story, have you ever asked, have you ever heard uh, hope uh, or, or ever heard of someone else's story and it's meant to generate hope in you, meant to generate belief in you? 
But you find yourself like, like, like alone, you find yourself with God, and you just say, how can this be? How can you, how can you use this? How can you, how can you take this and, and add to it? How can you fix this situation? How can it be? How can lives that are burdened by sadness find joy? How can this be? How can captives be set free? How does that actually happen? How, how can this be? How can you do this? How can the guilty ever been forg- be forgiven? How can you cleanse the consciousness of a guilty man? How can you do this? How can lost sons and daughters find their way back to the Father's house? Like, how can, how can this be? How can our hard and crooked hearts ever be replaced with new living hearts? How can a heart of stone be replaced with a heart of flesh? Like, how can this be? How can a valley of dry bones put on flesh and come to life again? How can this be? How can God, how can God bring resurrection out of death? How can this be? Listen to me. There is no death that his power cannot resurrect. There is no death that his power cannot resurrect. There is no one who is too far, no one who is too broken, no one who is too sinful. And if he can take a man like Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and breathe new life into him and takes the deadness in him and bring it to life, he can do that in you, he can do it in me, and he can do it in anybody. Would you stand with me this morning? Would you bow your heads for a second? I just want you to take a moment with God. I want you just to take a moment with God, and I know there's more to do today. I know you got places to go. You got some food to eat here in a couple minutes. I get it. Just give, give me another minute here. I want you to meet with God. I want you to push out all the distractions. I want you to meet with God right now. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come in this place. Where in your life do you need the resurrection power of God to bring something that is dead back to life? What do you need changed? If God had the permission to hold the paintbrush of your life, where do you think he'd start painting? What kind of brush strokes would God want to add? What kind of brush strokes would God want to use in your life? What would it look like? There's no death that his power cannot resurrect. There's no death that his power cannot resurrect. And if you're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, I need, I need the life, I need life, I need the power of God to bring, to bring hope. I'm dealing with some things right now where I just don't see a lot of hope. I actually feel a lot of discouragement. Maybe it's in your emotions. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in relationships that you're dealing with right now. Maybe it's, it's, it's just something else. 
But you need, you need some life. You need hope that God can speak life and declare life over some things that look broken or look dead or, or look impossible. Can I just see your hands in here today? You need to see God actually move. Every head bowed, every eye closed. It's just between you and God right now. I want to just see who I can encourage in prayer this morning. You need some encouragement. You need life to return to some things that have been dead, some things that have been broken. You need some things to be born again, reborn, rebirthed, new life. Holy Spirit, come and move in power today and come and do the things that only you can do. I'm at my limit. I've, I've done all that I can do, God. We know that just coming to church and hearing a sermon is not enough and singing some songs is not enough, but we need a fresh encounter with you. We need an encounter with the power of God to transform and to change lives and circumstances. And so, Lord, I pray that hope would rise in this place, faith would build in this place, that you would breathe hope into this room where it looks like death, where it looks like there is no way, where it looks impossible, where, where family members and kids are far from God, where finances look Look, look bad and it looks like there's no way through it where marriages and relationships seem broken and inevitable to end in a way we don't want them to. God, I pray faith and hope would rise in this place. I thank you that what we see with our eyes is not all that there is. That what we see with our eyes is not all that there is. I thank you that you're the God of the comma and I ask for every person in this room under the sound of my voice, oh God, that you would start to, you would start to paint comma after comma after comma. You start to add comma. You start to replace periods with commas in this room. I pray you would lift every head that is discouraged and downcast. I pray healing over those whose bodies are afflicted right now, who are dealing with things in their bodies that, 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 are, that are bringing so much discouragement and discomfort and pain where there has been hopelessness and chronic pain and chronic illness. I pray freedom in Jesus' name under the sound of my voice. I thank you that he who the Son has set free is free. And I pray right now, if that's you in this room, you're dealing with some issues in your body, I pray now freedom from the top of your head to the bottom of your toe. We just, we just speak to that illness, to that sickness, to that infirmity, and we say, get out now, go and be gone. We send it to the foot of the cross where the blood of Jesus was sufficient to pay for it, to cover it. I thank you that you're still replacing periods with commas, oh God. I thank you that there is not one story in this room that is hopeless. There's not one story in this room that is beyond your reach, beyond your ability to step in and transform and bring change. I thank you that you're still changing lives. Breathe new life, oh God. Breathe new life, oh God. Continue to change us by the power of your gospel. Make us new. Continue to lead us on this journey of transformation so that who we are now is not who we are a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, God. Move us on this journey. I pray fresh hunger and fire in our belly, oh God, for you. I pray you just burn up all the things that are distractions, all the things that don't matter, all the things that keep getting in the way, all the things that cause you know, separation between us and you or make it very difficult for us to pursue you like we should. And so Holy Spirit, lead us on that journey. I pray you'd consume us, fresh fire in our eyes for you, oh God, in this place. Come and do the things that only you can do. I pray this would be a comma moment for so many of you in this place who are desperate for God to move. I pray this would be a comma moment in your life. 
and not just that he fixes all your problems, but that he sets a new fire in your soul. He sets a new fire in your belly to pursue him in ways you haven't pursued him before. Come, oh God, and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen and amen.